0: There you are! Oh, oh. <laughs> you, you went all the way and you started to, to do the to, to get the vinyl shot.
1: Yeah, I mean it was the best the best background in my studio. So
0: it looks like a Zoom background at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even have any of my vinyl anymore. I got rid of it all. Really? Yeah. Just... When my girlfriend and I like we got rid of the place, the Hell's Kitchen place, and we were moving into like you know our own new new apartment. This is way back um i didn't want to bring all that vinyl with me i was like i'm done with this i'm using all the digital stuff anyway so
1: i hear that this is actually more um soundproofing exactly it's like a diffuser in the back of my room because my you know my speaker's
0: on the other end that's kind of what i was using that stuff for too it's funny it's it's a, good, it's a good use when you can use it for that so what's been up man how you been good yeah i don't know it's life life yeah. Well, you're like many of us who work from home, right? You you have your studio at home, and even though you're connected with the, you should talk a little bit about um the Steve Stout stuff, like that whole situation. But I've known you since way back in the day, Daddy's House. Is that where I met you?
1: Yeah, we met through John Eaton. That's right. Yeah. Have you seen John at all? I see him on Facebook occasionally. I run into him every once in a while. Um, he's still doing his thing, I guess.
0: It's funny to think about John Eaton. For, so, my, uh, my just a little backstory for everybody. My studio with Fred, when it was Ming and FS, we were on 43rd Street between 9th and 10th. And in that area, the Hell's Kitchen area, somehow it seemed to be sort of an area where there was tons of studios. And when you first got there, we had no idea. This is just where I have my joint. You worked at Daddy's House, which was on 44th, between 8th and 9th. Yeah. And it wasn't eventually um, Wyclef Studio. Was that on 45th or
1: 47th? Oh. I've been there. I forget what year, but there were so many studios. There was a place
0: directly the film center. Yeah.
1: The film cent.
0: Yeah. That on 30th. Um, that was on, that was on ninth Avenue between 45th and forty forty fourth 44th and 45th. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 And no, I, I, forget,
1: I think it was called, was it called sound on sound? There was a studio direct yeah. behind daddy's house, like on 45th, I guess. But like almost butting up against it. I feel like there were other studios in that building as well. And then, of course, Quad is right by there.
0: And then Sony was above that. And then there was, criteria, I'm not Criteria, um, oh, all those maybe it was the Hit Factory?
1: Sony and the Hit Factory were on the same block on 54th, yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. You know that the Hit Factory is now some luxury
0: apartments, but they call it like, the rock and roll apartments or something. Well, you know where the Hit Factory was? I think it was the Sony St- Sony Studios slash Hit Factory. There was like, I used to do events in there. That space turned into something else. And I was doing a networking event there called 20.20. And I think it was in the old space. It was in the old Hit Factory space. And they were using it as like, a, oh, I know what it was. Sony turned it into a writers' room, like a performance center. So, if you were a Sony published artist, you would go. Like, I, I'm going to be in town. I want to do a writing session. You'd go use one of their rooms, and it was, I think, it was the old Hit Factory. Gotcha. Yeah, Sony was on the
1: corner, and Hit Factory was kind of on the other side of the street, in mid mid block. But they were they were
0: right. Um, yeah, that's that's exactly what's up. So, speaking of Daddy's house, it's kind of funny to come full, go all the way back there. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about working as an engineer, like the, the whole backstory with working for, for Puffy, because my, our entrance into that whole area was so weird. It was John Eaton. He yeah. wanted us to do some remixes, which is how we got in there doing, I think it was a Biggie Smalls. Um, you guys that, that? Remi- What was it? Wasn't it Benjamin's remix? Yeah. The Benjamin's remix. Right. We did that. And then because of the weird thing about the white guys, In daddy's house there's a you know that it's like puffy basically had all you know like just a bunch of white dudes doing all the engineering yeah kind of so we we were kind of in. it. it's funny it's like all the creative guys you know the writers the players um but then the engineers and 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 i guess remixers and stuff like that and then john eaton because they had that rock band what was the rock band oh um Yeah. So John Eaton was like the, he was an
1: A&R guy there, but he was like for the, he was like the alternative guy. So anybody that was anything that wasn't R&B or hip hop, he dealt with the rock. He dealt with the drum and bass. He dealt with, you know, but it's interesting because in John Eaton's office, he was like, you know, he was definitely the outlier there, but the people that interned for him was like, well, my boy Damon Eaton, I don't know if you know him. He went on to be a big A&R guy. Um, What's his name? John Shapiro, Johnny Shipes, who, uh, you know, huge mogul. Now he was like John Eaton's intern at uh, at
0: at, that, at you
1: know at Bad Boy.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Bad Boy had that a little bit of that. Um, you know, in in at, at the Apollo when you rub that wooden yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. Bad Boy was a little bit like that. It was a really weird place. Well, the studio was not the label, but the the studio was just odd. Right cuz a lot of really nice people um it was just always odd when i was there i always just never knew like what i was like trying to do my thing and trying to meet people yeah and i remember one time i was in the elevator and it was puffy um, i want to say mace but i'm not 100% sure if my memory serves me correctly and and um the drummer from uh from Motley Crue what's his name oh T- Tommy Lee Tommy Lee, I, I I met him there as well, yeah. So I'm in the elevator with the three of them, and of course, you know, like, I'm in there doing work, stuff that's related to, to you know, Puffy, but I'm not going to say, yo, what's up, I'm working on this, whatever, because um, he's, like, having a conversation, and Tommy just is, like, cheesing at me, and he just leans over, and he's like, I'm Tommy! Yeah, yeah. He sticks his hand out, he's the nicest dude ever, I'm like, I know you're Tommy Lee, dude. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> I saw this mixtape tape last week. That was right at that time, too, because I remember w- w- when I saw that Puff walked him through and introduced him to me and i remember that was the first thing that went through my mind i was like oh yeah i just saw that sex tape
0: <laughs> Actually, i didn't even think about that i just thought about how nice he was like motley Crue during their time i mean they were basically rock gods metal gods you know what i mean like if you were into that hair metal thing motley Crue wasn't a heavy band but it was definitely like you know girls and guys love Motley Crue, so they were f- mad famous. And for him to just be in that elevator with these like hip hop moguls, and him as this like wild out there drummer to be so friendly, I was like, ah, this, I want to be like this guy. This guy's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Talk a little bit about being at, at Daddy's house because I know you used to tell me these, these great stories about how you started ordering, you know, doing the track orders. No. And- oh, well- so here's my here's my experience
1: with Bad Boy. Really, I never worked for Daddy's House. Um, the only people that really worked at Daddy's House were the assistant engineers and the studio management. You know what I mean? And then, so the way I got involved with Bad Boy, I actually went on tour with Bad Boy though on the first the, in '98, the um, the No Way Out tour, which was basically right after Biggie died. Puffy had just gotten super famous and he had started rapping and they also had the whole label, you know what I mean? Like the whole, all the the artists. So I went on that tour as a roadie and yeah, I was like setting up the turntables for Clark Kent and, and the stuff for Stevie J. And as soon as I got out there, I, they asked me, Stevie J was supposed to run the show. They had ADATs on stage and he's right. like, I'm not doing that. so he's like, you got to do that. So I've been the, all the music other than what they were playing over it was coming out of this ADAT rig that I was sitting on the side of the stage watching for cues, you know? Um, and my friend, Michael Patterson was making the show tape in the, in the studio bus. Sometimes during the first set, he'd be handing me the, the, the you know, the VHS tapes. Cause it's ADAT. I um, remember And, and I'd have to like have the cue points and program them into the BRC and then by the time the second set came up, yeah, that that was pretty nerve wracking. But, um, but I, as a result of that, I met Michael Patterson and we got to be good friends. And he was like, at the time I was living in LA and he's like, move to, move to New York. Cause I, I mean, that's a whole other story, LA, but uh, I came out to New York and the first thing that I, the job that I got really with puff was he was starting his second album forever. And, they brought me in to collect samples like to not and not samples like loops but like drum hits and you know drum samples and just different samples for 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 dudes to load into mpc so like the first i don't know how many months of my job was just like i mean there's a hard drive with thousands of kicks thousands of snares (laughs) labeled like a dirty kick 13 you know what i mean like um so that's how i started and honestly i never really engineered i to, i did a little engineering for puff because he ended up just getting to know me and i literally didn't even i'd never used pro tools when i started there i was using digital performer i had learned audio or like digital audio on sound designer two. if you remember that yeah i used digital performer too back in the day as well so yeah funny. So that's that was like and I just couldn't afford Pro Tools. You needed yeah. to buy I think. So when I first started they were like you should definitely learn this Pro Tools cuz that was when they they were one of the first hip hop labels to start using it for, and not using 2inch. And um I just learned it as part of chopping up samples for this library and then at one point I think Puff asked me to help him edit I think it was the the music video for um it, uh public enemy 2000 and he did a they did a dance break in the middle where it broke down and was like um you know it's like some old school what is it like planet rock comes in and he does dance break and then it goes back into the song i'm not sure if that was the time but i remember sitting with puff and editing something and he was like oh you're that dude or whatever (laughs) and i literally pro tools and then he starts asking me (laughs) like every album sequence from the next, like four years at the end of every project. Oh, that's the thing too. He asked me to go to Europe with him to sequence that album because the, the deadline, they were like past the deadline and he had to go to, he had to go do some press in England and he's like, just come with me. I swear it's only going to be a couple of days. We'll knock this out, blah, blah, blah. I go there as pro tools rig and everything set up in this hotel room in London. That was wild too. Um <laughs> and and we never did anything. You know, it like I was set up and he was partying and there was all these we were going we'd go to these clubs and it was like wild. Well do not disturb is not working. But um Yeah, I noticed that mine's not working either, so whatever. Okay, it doesn't matter. Um so we ended up um we ended up not getting it done in the time that he had in London, except the last night we were there, he's like, you know, we end up working and we got through like halfway through the album. He's like, I gotta go to Paris tomorrow. It's fashion week.
0: You gotta come with me. I promise this is gonna be like a day. Like, <laughs> You're like, dude, I'll go with you to Fashion Week if the party's gonna continue like this and I'm getting paid. <laughs> exactly. You getting paid? Yeah, totally.
1: So um so yeah, I went to Paris and sat around, and this was like Paris hotel rooms where the the hotels are like seven stories tall, right? Because there's everything's a certain height and so on the top level it was like the suite and then the room right next to it was supposed to be security or something so he just gave me that room and i had the pro Tools set up in there and again it was like a week of nothing really happening some like sometimes he'd like bring some people in my room would be like yo play them this play them that whatever but we we didn't do anything until the last night i was there and then we sequenced we finished the album sequence and i think in the meantime, I was probably building like interludes on my own time when he was out uh, doing whatever he was doing. Like, so certain and probably a lot of it never even got used, but it would be like and there'd be an idea and he'd like put all the sound effects together. So it's like in a phone bank. And
0: then but, you know, I don't know. Um. <laughs> I remember you telling me he was he flew you out to the Hamptons once just like. On a helicopter. On a, a helicopter, because he wanted you to sequence the sequence some record. And I was like, I get it. People get superstitious. And also, you know, I think, I, I tell people this about the music industry. It's like, if you can be a capable human being, and you can turn a, I don't know, into, I'll figure it out without having to say anything, and you can orchestrate what needs to happen... That's what I consider to be a producer. That's why I'm a good producer is because I don't need somebody to tell me, figure this out. I hear the problem and I say, okay, can I figure this out before they know that I'm figuring it out, or in a way that will serve them so they you know. And so a lot of people even to to, to this day call me for all kinds of things because I'm a problem solver. Right. It doesn't even matter what it is; they'll just call me because I can figure it out. And half the time I'm like, did you Google that? because you know, back in the day we couldn't do that, right? right you call your other engineer friends or you would do, you know, like you would do whatever. But um, I always saw you as sort of like a Swiss army knife like that too. Your, your career and your pathway has been sort of a pathway of, yes, I can do that or I can do this better than you can so I can just get by. And then, you know, I learn and learn and learn, right?
1: Yeah. That, I feel like that's,
0: that describes every gig
1: I ever do in, you know, in, to some degree. And it's really just having that skill. A, no excuses Unless, like, something breaks or something. But, you know, you figure out
0: ways of solving the problems, like you said. You know? Yeah. Yeah, producer p- solves audio problems. But, you know, when you're a tech, you're solving other problems. I think touring is a good... <clears throat> I never really mentioned this before, but... And I don't know how you ended up on the road. You should talk about how you ended up on that, on that tour. But mm-hmm. touring is a really good place to understand that there's no no is not the answer right. you can't remain on tour with somebody and be utilitarian on a tour because everyone every second of everyone's time is being paid for and be like that's not my job your job is to just make sure the show happens and that nobody knows that the whole, everything up until that moment was totally completely fucked and maybe the whole entire show is fucked except as long as the audience doesn't know right and, like, you describing Michael Patterson handing you off stuff and you're still programming it before the show. Like, I've been through that situation. Like, Fred and I, when we were on tour, we would literally get to a club in some random town and the sound system would be a mess. I and they wouldn't you. be used to having DJs there. And we would literally rewire the sound system. Okay. Someone, yeah, someone tried to call me there. And I, even though I have Do Not Disturb on it, just, I don't know. Um, try to call me during, try to hit me during sound, um, you know, like we would fix it during sound check. And then you, mm-hmm. you, you know, people would be like, why does your set sound so much better? This club never sounds like this. It's like, yeah, because we can't play. couldn't play like that. Right. It sounded like death. We do a sound check. It was like, this is horrible. We have to fix this.
1: Wow. You know, the and, fact and- that, you do that is, says a lot that you could figure that you could, you knew what to do. Cause I, It's weird. I've actually run sound on certain shows and we can, I don't know if we want to talk about Prince, but like,
0: yeah, no, I 100% want to talk about Prince because I also, I I think about Prince the other day. I was like, what, what would he be doing during quarantine? And because he required so many people to be available for him at, at the drop of a dime, what would this mean for him? But let's get back to that in a second. No, but I've run sound at shows
1: before. And it's like, I really don't know what I'm doing in that realm. Like, something starts feeding back like i know i would turn it down but like the the, like the eqing for feedback for monitors and all that stuff like there's so much that goes into all that um yeah i feel and and to go back to what you said about being a swiss army knife i feel like i can figure out how to solve problems in so many different ways but like if you really get down to it like an engineer like a recording engineer i don't really know the ssl in and out like that like i don't I'm, I definitely don't know live sound and I've done it though. Because hundred
0: percent. I've done live sound as well. And I've also, I recently did a rock EP where I was in a room tracking drums and they had a, you know, there was a console in there and I hired Mario McNulty to be the engineer because I was like, I can use the console, but I don't want to be in there sweating as the producer. Like I don't want to have to deal. Like I don't know the console well enough to be, As good as I am as a producer, so so I brought him in to be the engineer, and he you know because he works on that's what he works on every day, right? And there's you know like when you work on something enough, you 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 know it becomes second nature. You're not looking for the button, you're not looking for the right. That's what you want to do in a professional setting. But you know what you just said about if something starts feeding back and you pull the fader down, there are many people who just back away from the console and be like, I don't know what's going on. I can't fix it. Or you push that one button that starts it to
1: feedback, and you don't know how to like, you know, you put something into input, it starts feeding back and you hit the space bar and it starts playing and you can't stop it, so it just keeps going.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but you just, you know, like some, some people wouldn't stop and actually that is the way that you, you deal with feedback is you pull the fader down first so that it stops feeding back and then you've what's happening is that that frequency is resonating through the system and getting picked up by the microphone so you, you've got to dial that frequency back and you got to do it carefully so that you don't make it sound like whatever. But that's when you bring out a microphone in in monitors, what you're doing is you're sweeping the microphone in front of the monitors to find out what frequencies are going to cause feedback. And then you use a notch filter or a parametric EQ to push down those frequencies. That's all you're doing. It's not like rocket science. It just takes time and patience. And if you You don't know that, like, yeah. And you have to like, I watch these dudes in Japan at
1: Budokan ring out the monitors and they're like it's totally they're not like check one two they go over there They're like doo, 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 doo. and they find these frequencies doing that and then
0: they're and they know where they one, are on the one thing that i can say is as a touring musician or anybody who's ever traveled to japan playing in japan was the most unbelievable experience because people take their jobs So seriously. Let me tell you this. I'll digress real quick. We're playing uh, Mount Fuji. We get to Mount Fuji. We're on this deep concentration tour. The guys set up our, we set up our equipment. There's a bunch of dudes watching us. And like with Ming and FS, it was very particular because we were playing with four decks going into a mixer. We had two mixers in between the decks. We were playing live bass and guitar. There was a whole rig and we didn't expect, I mean, it was like our own cut and paste rig. No one was touring like that. Right. It wasn't like guitar, bass, drums, whatever, or just one set of turntables. We set up, they do the sound check, it's great. Everyone's very, very nice to us. And then they come in and they kind of usher us away. And we're like looking at them, like what the fuck are you doing? And they start taking it apart. And we're like, what the fuck? We just spent all this time, you know, sound checking and putting all the shit together. They take everything apart. They tape, they mark everything on the stage they break it down. And when we come back to play, it's perfect. Wow. Well, I now, tell you no one does that. No one breaks down your gear for you and resets it up. before, Unless you've been on tour with a, with a team that's done this practice. many. They were so on point professional. I was like, this is why things in Japan are the way that they are. Because people take the simplest job, if it's, even if it's serving tea on a train. They take it very seriously and they do it with respect, and everyone respects them doing it. Americans could really learn something about that part of like everybody has a place to play in society, no one's lower than someone else. And that was an amazing aspect of Japan where we we're like, Holy cow, they I can't believe they just reset up our gear with tape and you know, yeah. Wait, Americans need to learn about respect?
1: What? <laughs> <laughs> no, when I was in. At Budokan, we had like multiple nights in a row. I was there with Prince in 96, I believe. And uh, we set up and like all the equipment's on stage and his two cymbal guitars, his bass and his hollow body are sitting there in front of his martial, or in front of his stacks. They put, I, I don't know if it was one or two armed guards just sitting there next to his guitars the entire night. Overnight. Yeah. They, they weren't going to
0: take a chance.
1: Yeah. I don't so know why
0: That's what I'm talking about. It's like on another level of, it's like they're thinking beyond, you know, we would be like, ah, it's their problem. Right. They're thinking we can never have this happen. Right. This can never happen. Yeah. Yeah. Which is an amazing mentality. So you're at daddy's house. You become his, basically, I don't know how many albums did you order for them? Sequence. Sequence um a lot like everything from
1: the Forever album which I think was ninety no two thousand I guess do you get any uh, platinum plaques for sequencing an album I, I could have got it I could I mean I have I do scratching on on those albums too so. yeah and pro, drum programming and I did I produced the intro to one of the the for the G album. I could have got some plaques. I think back. I don't know. Like I fucked up and let that go. That time go. Um, I really wish I had a plaque for the uh, notorious Kim album, Lil Kim. I did. I did a bong hit on one of the songs. Oh, did you? But I also did scratching on two of the songs.
0: That's like some blessed nation shit right there. Bong hit on Lil Kim's album. It says. It says uh, sound effects. I think,
1: but I know that's me. Yeah, they always call it sound effects. Yeah. That's um, funny. But no, I never got any plaques. I should have. I, I I mean, I, I did a beat on a Method Man album that went gold. I should, and I never got a plaque. I don't know if they even made plaques. Because they probably saw that as like a failure. Because remember, at that at that point in the early 2000s, like if you went gold and you were a platinum artist, you didn't make it. You're getting dropped. I mean,
0: I think that in hip hop, which was a little bit different than, let's say, the rock stuff. And, and also because it was a Daddy's House. In Daddy's House, there was a lot of... Um. Well, there was crews, and there was a lot of people around, and you never—no w- one was ever like. I think Michael was probably Michael Patterson was probably he would, Puffy would be like, "Who played on this record?" Like, you know, like he, you know the engineers knew more than I think everybody knew who exactly got credits on everything. And I think because there was so many people around, what's that? I think because there was so many people around, and you were part of the sauce that they just didn't credit you because you would have got a plaque if you were a part of the liner notes. Edited on everything i mean so go, go, go get your plaques then what's up no i
1: know but i waited too long and i think at the time it was like they would give plaques to all the main people like the producers who did the beats and there's so many people though involved in these records so the label has to pay for those plaques so they're going to give all the feature artists and the, the artists and the producers plaques anybody else could pay like 300 bucks and get their plaque but and also at that time like i had really started to dig in with the blessed nation stuff So I wasn't working for Puff and all those all that stuff like full time. I just worked enough to pay my rent, to have my own studio, and work on my own thing to try to develop my own thing. So at the time, I probably didn't have the extra three hundred bucks every time one of those records came out. Which I, you know, looking back at it, I should definitely have plaques. Some of those records, even at the time, because I kind of had an attitude similar to like you guys, like oh, this is commercial, whatever. Nowadays, if I DJ, like, that Bad Boy shit is, like... Well, well now it's... <laughs> yeah, it's, that's a funny... It's better than anything else that comes out. It's coming out now in terms of getting a party going. All those Bad Boy records, they sound amazing. And all the stuff that we didn't like about it back then... It sounds it, great now. Great! Yeah, I think it's kind of like people liking hair metal after the fact, too.
0: Yeah, uh, I think that the, the, the one of the things that sonically even though we saw it as a little bit cheesy, because, you know, we were... you know The underground was... The underground is what motivates creative people, I think. And we saw that as, like, a total sellout and kind of cheese. But the records were still made very well, and they were made through nice consoles, and they were engineered by good engineers. And there was thought put into them, and there's reasons why they sold millions and millions and millions of copies. We just, I think, as artistic people, saw them as cheese or shit sandwiches. But the reality is, is as you, and when we were also young. And so when you're younger, I think you look at music as like this pure, there's like levels of purity. But what you don't realize is that music is just supposed to make you feel something, whether it's good, bad, p- pretty, ugly, or whatever. And when you get older and your perspective changes in, in, in the terms of like, you're more accepting of all kinds of different things because you know life is more like that. Right. that you look back at those records and you reminisce a little bit, but you're like, yeah, man, those were good records because they are good records. And I just was being too nearsighted to right. allow myself. Cause also the clicks that you're in, you're like, it becomes like a clicky thing. Like you're down with like mob deep and you know, whatever. You're not going to be down with. It's just, you know, that's the, the immature way of looking at music. But it's funny. Cause the last album I worked on with puff was the press play album. And that
1: was like, right when blessed nation got signed. So, so I He asked me to, like, basically be the engineer on the thing just because he wanted me to be there or whatever, meaning, like, engineering his vocals, which is, that's a whole thing unto itself. Like, you know, working with people that are naturally great artists that just do one take, you know, like, I wordplay and various as an example, but those guys... Two, three takes maximum. Like anything beyond that, it's not going to be good anyway. But then you got an artist like Puff where the, the rhymes are written and they're sometimes done by committee, and sometimes there's 30 people in the room giving comments or whatever. But anyway, um the the, the press play album, he was having Feral Manch, Most death Black Thought, Talib Kweli write his lyrics. And it was like it was like what exactly what you're talking about? Because it's funny listening to podcasts now and hearing the stories of back then of like yeah. puff going up at like puff would show up at Wetlands and like such and such had said some shit on like the Roots. Remember the Roots did that video where they dissed all the like bling bling shit, and then like puff went to see someone at Red Wetlands and. I forget, he ran into somebody and it was like a whole situation. But then, like, it's just a couple years later, you know, Jay-Z drop, drop name drops Talib Kweli and Common and all of a sudden, like, Puff is like, let me get Pharrell Munch to write these lyrics. And <laughs> crazy. The funny thing is, one day, and, like, literally, I was on that, I was on those sessions and then we got the call, like, we got to go to LA to meet with Interscope tomorrow. I had to, I had to, like, cancel one day and go and we get we got our record deal with blessed the nation so i kind of got off that that thing but the but so i only did a few sessions on for that album but the one session it was a pharaoh Monch verse and puff like couldn't even figure out like i mean no disrespect to puff because he's a fucking really smart guy and a really good producer but he couldn't understand exactly what pharaoh was saying like lyrically he didn't he just didn't get the meta- one metaphor it was something about I remember that it was a metaphor for doing pull-ups on the, on the don't walk sign, mm-hmm. but, he, but I, don't, I don't remember what the line was, but he's like, what does that mean? And I'm like, I'm like, oh, he's talking about, you know, doing the pull-ups and the thing or whatever. But I remember this one line in that song and Pharaoh Munch flow is crazy, right? It's not, yeah, it's not 16th notes. It's not, it's not just regular. And, and I remember Puff like had a really tough time on this one line. And also to preface this story, Puffy knew that I was into underground shit. He knew I was making drum and bass, and that I liked hip hop that was all samples and grindy yeah. and like Wu Tang and shit. So we're sitting there, and he could—he was having a tough time getting this one line, and he said it, and I and I got went on the talk back and I was like, yo, that was dope." And he goes, "Wait, did, did, did y'all get that on camera? Did y'all? <laughs> get, what? Did you, say? you said that was—you said I was dope." Yeah, yeah. I love it self-aware too like puff would laugh at himself he knew p he would look at you he made i can't even describe but he would do this thing where he would look at you and have this like this smile on his face and he's like you see what i'm getting away with right here? you know what i mean
0: like he totally knew the whole thing it wasn't he, like no he was i mean look you were in there with him and my we didn't like the you know Again, it was like anti what we were doing, but we got it and we we got the genius of it. What we didn't get was people not understanding how, un- how dumb the whole thing was. Meaning like the genius was that he's like, I'm gonna take hits from the eighties. It's one of his raps and just put rap over hits from the eighties and I'm gonna make, they're already hits. So I'm just gonna have enough money to pay for this. It's gonna be a hit again. It's the formula, it's working. And he was able to get, you know, I think with his genius of finding people, Biggie, Mary J, you know, all these different really real MCs, real characters, real hip hop artists. He had that in him and he had that like fire, you know, and then he, he eventually put the coat on himself because he he was like, I got to carry this torch now because I built something up and no, I can't, you know, like Biggie's gone. I got to, you know what I mean? Like he just knew that like, and even though it wasn't credible to us, he—you could tell that he, you yeah. Know I mean, he did had the
1: swagger. He had the the attitude already. It wasn't a matter. of... It was just that he just wasn't a musician. But he also like look at the dude. He did Broadway. He ran the marathon. These are all things people could probably say like, nah, bro, you can't do
0: that or whatever. And he's like, I nah, remember like, when you I remember when he ran the marathon. The only too. the only <laughs> thing—it's funny. The only thing that I really didn't like, and this is you'll you probably remember this because i always tell people about this j-lo poster when it first came through the studio at at, at daddy's house we could talk about that i use that as a reference actually for a lot of young female artists as as like what that was but when I- he got when he, oh, what what's the poster i don't remember there was like a poster of her on like a bed or on a couch like in these little like little shorts with it with like a wife beat her on or something. And she was like really young and she was just drop dead gorgeous. And everybody, the posters had come in when we were at daddy's house and p- people were like, yo, who's that? Or everyone was like flipping out. They're like, yo, that's, that, that's daddy's new. That's the new, that's JLo. Mm-hmm. And like, but the picture is such a, an amazing picture of her. Cause she looks approachable like a girl next door, but hotter than anything. Right. And, when I work with a female artist that's trying to be sexy, I always use that as a reference to be like, look, she doesn't look slutty. She didn't, she wasn't demeaned in hip hop. She looks like beautiful. And like you almost like you would just like, she would just like woke up in the morning and she was sitting on the couch, you know, right. Beautiful. And I use that a lot of times to show female artists, like you don't have to go that other, you can look sexy, but don't have to go that slutty route. If you, you know what I mean? Like, Look we'll at this pic- the photo, and it's really good. And I've based photo shoots off of that um, before. But the one thing that I didn't like was when he when he got, when he was at what was the club where he got, in, got caught with a gun? Uh, club New York. Yeah, Club New York. That whole thing for me was like a little too. Oh, with a gun, there was a gun went off. You're talking about
1: the, the shooting, but uh, the he,
0: shooting. no, but he had a gun that he ended. He got like there was a gun that like fe-
1: something got thrown out the window of the car. Something.
0: Yeah. I was like, what are you doing? Why are you going down this route? That was like a moment when I think he was going the wrong direction because he got into that, wanted to be real with the crew and then he just got too inflated.
1: Puffy was not, this is not bullshit. Puffy was fucking, There, look at. I mean, Google Puffy punching somebody. He did it a million times. He knocked people out in clubs for saying that. Don't talk to my girlfriend. And like, Puff is fucking real.
0: No, but I mean, I'm saying like he was at a success point. That was like at this point where he was yep. so successful. I was like, what are you doing? You don't need to touch this. What are you, why are you still going to the club like this? But, right. you know, it is the life. It's the life. But I mean,
1: yeah. It's the lifestyle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's crazy, man. Because the,
1: uh, the first studio experience I had with Bad Boy, because I started, I went on the road and I was living in L.A., and I got off the road and I like I went out to LA under false pretenses. Somebody told me that they were gonna hook me up with all this work and it was actually Randy Jackson from American Idol. He was just bullshitting. And uh
0: <laughs> You know, that's a that's a common thread that I've heard about Randy, like promise the world. What? It's LA though. Yeah, that's LA. That is LA.
1: Yeah. Um but anyway, yeah. So then I ended up, I, I, I kept in contact with Michael Patterson and he was like, come to New York. So I came to New York and the first job that I did with Bad Boy was um, was starting on that album. And we we all went to the Bahamas for three weeks to, um, to just, just like start that record. Wait, I forget why, wait, why are we getting on this? What were we talking about just before this? We were talking
0: about Puffy being real and in a club, people getting gangster. So we went down there and the book
1: about Death Row had come out. Had oh, Gun- right. It was a Shug Knight book or whatever. And I read that while I was kind of just getting familiar with this whole crew. And I'm reading this Shug Knight book about all the gang members and the violence and the making, forcing people to drink piss and all this stuff. And I was just like, holy shit, what am I getting myself into? And we were recording at Compass Point in, uh, in, in the Bahamas. Um, and uh, Shug had just been there like a couple weeks before. And they were telling us stories about having a huge garbage bag full of cash and that they were like something happened. And all of a sudden, like everybody ran and jumped in this van and they grabbed the garbage bag full of cash. And there was like a situation going down and it just all sounded like very crazy and a little bit beyond what's necessary to make music. Um, but luckily for, for me, bad boy, I mean, I I was around a couple crazy situations, especially with shine, but, um, but I mean, for the most part, you know, it was just like making music in the studio, smoking weed.
0: Well, that, you know, bad boy is the place where I learned the no guns in the studio. Like that was a thing, (laughs)
1: like,
0: you know, like no guns in the studio. I remember being there for something and, and then like people had taken guns out, like just to put them on the desk. And I was like, yo, I can't be in this room, dude. Like, I'm not...
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. not
0: hanging out in a room with guns in in the studio. Like, oh, and I don't know who was, like, the assistant engineer. He was like, oh, no, 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 I'm just collecting the guns.
1: I was like, what?
0: He's like, yeah, there's no guns in the studio here. Puffy's going to be here soon. There's no guns in the studio. Wow. And he took, like, three or four, you know, probably, like, nine millimeter or whatever, you know, automat- like, semi-automatic handguns and put them in a bag and... and brought them back to the front desk and put them on. <laughs> and I was like, did that just, did that really just happen? And then that became an ongoing like joke, no guns, in the, go, no guns in the studio. I never saw a lot of guns to be honest, but one time we
1: were in, uh, we were in Atlanta recording at Silent Sound and um, they, there was like a, the, the entrance was like a patio deck and me and Patterson were actually standing outside having some conversation and CeeLo Green walked out and he like had a gun in his hand and he was just like had a big grin on his face and he just it was like a it was like a I don't know it was like a joke or something and i looked over and uh yeah it was just kind of like well, like what the fuck just happened
0: <laughs> i still have that rule there's no guns in the studio just so you know if you want to and me it. too <laughs> so wait you, you you where were you in, you before la were you in minneapolis is that we be- yeah totally i was in
1: I I, mean, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and I I lived in Minneapolis from like nineteen till twenty four or five or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were,
0: but you were at Paisley then.
1: Yeah, I started. I was actually start. I started as an assistant engineer at a another studio in in town, and then um, and I also I was really into sampling and shit. And this was like early days of all that kind of. So, um, I bought an Emacs two and I was like, you know, chopping things up and making beats and stuff. And I became, but I was hanging out with no, none, nobody I was hanging out with was hip hop at all. It was all musicians. So yeah. I'd be the guy that did like the, the loops and the breaks and shit. Um, and then with Prince and I was hanging out with Prince's drummer, Michael Bland a lot. Um, I got to know him cause he was like playing with Prince and touring with Prince around the world, but he would also play in bars and Minneapolis is like just such a dope music scene. Um, so there was this bar called, there's a bar called Bunkers that's right outside of town. And I would go there every Sunday or every Monday and Tuesday back then. I think it's Sunday and Monday now, but um, it was just like this dope cover band that would play old funk songs and soul songs. And like anybody would come and sit in with them. Like Sheila E would come down, uh, Slash from Guns N' Roses sat in one time Um any number of people prince came down there all the time and jams like that's how he met the drummer but anyway i got to know this dude and we were making music together we started we'd done a couple projects and then he had a rig his his live rig he had it was like a refrigerator sized rack with like a mixer and samplers and a drum machine in it which was just like an alesis sr 16 triggering <laughs> um and the guy who was running that had moved on or whatever so this this drummer was like can you come out to paisley and load some stuff like learn my rig and load these new songs because basically how they would do it was anytime they the prince had a new song that he wanted to perform live if it was i mean if it was a live band song they would just play it um but if it was like an electronic song with a beat we would go in the studio pull up the multi-track just pull up the drums get a good mix of it, record it to DAT, sample it. And then I would program it into his rig. So he had like a, next to his kick drum pedal, he had a start stop button that was like a reconfigured boss pedal. And that, and we had, it was like old school MIDI stuff. So we had to have boxes like custom made that this box changes program change information into some other sort of information so we can change the drum machine to the right pattern so he would he had an M- a, Le- a lexicon mrc by him with a list of 50 song titles and he'd push like 23 enter and it would load like days of wild or whatever so it would load the samples in the drum machine the samples in the sampler the drum machine would go to the pattern and there was a thing too where if you did when you turned the rig on you had to hold down this one pedal that was gaff taped to the <coughs> Because if you didn't do that, it wouldn't loop. You know what I mean? And you'd have to restart the whole system or whatever. So yeah, it was like crazy. You could do all this in a laptop or like probably some little time, like a phone now. Um, but, but I would program the beats that he, they would use live. And he would, and the dude has photographic memory. So he, the, the drummer, so he would, he would remember the tempos. He would just start playing with the thing and it would be perfect. Like every time. He didn't
0: even have a click track to like two,
1: three, four. Nothing no click track there were no click tracks because prince even though we were using samples and stuff he didn't like janet jackson was on tour the same time as us and she was using dat and lip-syncing probably we were on stage at wembley arena and he's like dissing janet jackson for using a dat you know what i mean like at every show he's like oh janet came through here she used a dat you want this or you, want that? you know what i mean like <laughs>
0: Uh-oh. No, yo, and I, I got to be—I must have seen that tour because I went to a Janet Jackson tour at, um, at uh, w- um, Madison Square Garden. My sister and my dad, my sister was young and wanted to go see Janet Jackson. My dad was going, he's like, you should come to this. And I, of course, I was into metal and hip hop. So I was like, I don't want to see Janet Jackson. But then I went to the show and I was, that was like the first eye-opening experience of like, oh, this isn't just perform. Like, you're not just performing. It's a full show. Theater. It was the, the, like, the theater, and so like, I didn't have a problem with the, flo- the background vocals being flown in and when like, she wasn't singing because she was dancing so much. And that was the first time in my musical career, it's funny, this parallel thing happening, where I was like, I get what that is. That's not Metallica live on stage. That's a whole universe of performers, singers and dancers and guitar players and drummers, like this massive thing. But lines. it was super entertaining, and I had a really good time. Even though I was totally not into that at the time, you know, I knew the hits, right? As every as like you know, the other thing as a young person back in that time. We we all knew the hits of everything, right. whether you wanted to or not. You knew the new Puffy Jam. You knew the Janet Jackson, the Michael Jackson, the the whatever it might have been. Yeah, true.
1: Yeah, so so my gig was like that. Was my gig for Prince, and and the dope thing was when he when when he asked me to come out and do the first couple. It was like, load these beats in for these three songs. And he wants you to add a little bit of it, a little bit of extra stuff to it, because he wants it to kind of sound like a remix when we perform live. So I basically had an open, like, you know, clean slate. Do whatever you want to these beats. And I would add, I would add like percussion and, and, or like put a different loop over top of it and stuff. And so I did the first three and, and then, of course, it's like, come in after hours. They rehearse all day. You come in, do your thing, and then leave. And then the next day, the drummer calls me. He's like, yeah, he liked what you did. He wants you to remix everything on the in, in my rig.
0: <laughs> was- I love how that just happens. You're yeah. like, I'm just doing this thing. I'm not even sure. Right. And then, because cause, you know, people know how notorious cra- Crazy Prince is about whatever. He's, you know... Um, but when he likes something and he likes you or he, you're in the, that fold, you're part of the soup. Right. And, and you become part of this thing that's much larger.
1: Yeah. The
0: crazy thing about my time with Prince was I was, it was just two years
1: ago, I, but I was so young. I mean, I must've been like, I don't know, 20, 21. And it's like, I ended up going. So, so eventually they asked me to go on the road with them and be like the electronic tech Um, of course, I don't know shit about being a tech, like technically in terms of like, if I need to solder something or whatever, you know what I mean? And they tried to get me to learn that, like some of the older techs on the crew. But then I remember this one dude took me aside. He's like, yo, you don't want to, if you don't want to solder, don't learn how to solder. You know what I mean? Like, if you can't do it, don't worry about it. Like, just don't, if you, you want to be, you want to be a guy who fixes cables all your life or you want to be a guy who programs beats? You know what I mean? And yeah, that's
0: some good advice right there. I mean, the funny thing is I know how to solder. (laughs) But um I get that point. I tell that to young musicians as well, especially when it comes to sound design. Because a lot of like I'll be teaching someone how to do production and they'll get really held held up on like some sort of sound design thing that they're working on. And I'm like, I don't really understand why we're spending so much time on this. Do you want to write songs or produce songs? or you want to make you want to be a sound designer. I'm like cuz there's dudes who just smoke weed making amazing sounds but they can't write a song or make a beat to save their lives. Right. And I'm like they that's what they do. They're not going to be able to get past that. They know how to do all the patching, they know how to make all the crazy sounds. I'm like it's not well it's not time well spent for you and it's not time well spent for us right now. Like I can teach you how to do that but we're going to waste an hour so that you can learn how to modulate an envelope with with an lfo and like i'm like that's all cool and like i know how to do that but i also have a rule about that stuff is like find the sound that sounds almost like what you want before you start trying to bend it into you know like i look at sound sound design sound manipulation is like glass blowing you can only go so far with it before it cracks or it's just like turns into mush Right. So you might as well start with something that has the form that you already want, and that's kind of like the same thing. I mean, I know how to do all the, the electronic stuff because I studied that in college, but that's a whole uh, other. I always wanted to be a record producer, so like I kind of jettisoned that. Right. Yeah. You know. So you're on the road. You're you're Princess Sound Tech. You're you're doing you're 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 the basically f- doing programming. The first tour, I was just in charge of that electronic stuff, and I was
1: sit by the rig. On the side of the stage and that was the whole thing but then we go back to paisley and so by the way the way prince was working at that time period he had a he had a band on on his payroll you know full all year round and we would rehearse for like a year and then go out on tour for like a week and a half and then go back and just start rehearsing again um so that's how the band was so tight and they would rehearse a million songs so they could do all those after shows and like jam forever but then when we went back to minneapolis after that first tour all of a sudden then i'm kind of part of the crew and he started doing uh, i don't know if they were all free but he started doing shows at at paisley park every weekend um all the time and like sometimes it would just be like oh we're having a party tonight we're we're gonna we're gonna play sometimes they would plan it ahead of time but it was happening all the time and and Prince was notorious he, like he hated sound guys and guitar techs or he... <laughs> but I think everybody hates those people. probably. I feel like the guitar thing was kind of like "Don't touch my guitar," sort of vibes. Uh, the sound thing was definitely like he, he could hear really well too. He did not like to be performing a song and tell, and to be and could tell that somebody's eQing his vocal in the house. You know what I mean? He's like, yeah, your change is happening while I'm performing. Cause now I'm thinking about the fucking sound. Like, let me not deal with that. But, um, so he was always firing sound guys, and I was the one guy on the backline crew that was had studio experience, so I knew how consoles work, and I just started mixing those shows. So, there's all there's a bunch of bootlegs from '95, and my name, my, my real name's Mark. There's a bunch of bootlegs from '95 where he's like, Mark, turn up the drums,
0: and shit. <laughs> <laughs> See that's your other claim to fame you've smoked bong smoked the bong and a little Kim record and, and you're in the and you're in the Prince live tapes
1: I'm also he put me in a music video too for a, on a it was like a VH1 special Where he did this song days of wow. It's like one of his rap songs at that time period and I used to sit there at the at the board Mixing and I would like always just be bobbing my head like getting into it EQing or not, you know, not really changing a lot. but I was also, the, the reason he liked having me out there was because I'd been around. I knew when the guitar solos were coming up. Right. I knew, and I just knew, I don't know. He's, I guess he just thought I knew what I was doing or whatever. But yeah, I would I would, I would ride his guitar or whatever. Um, but I would sit there and bob my head. And, and and the console at one point was right next to the stage where like a, a monitor desk would be. It was also running, it was running monitor and front of house. But, but one time I was sitting there and I was like, I was just bobbing my head. The band is jam, and I look up there. And I don't see him anywhere. And then I'm like, I feel this presence, and I look next to me, and there's Prince, like in sync with me, like just bobbing his head with me with like a with like a um, lollipop. And he look, <laughs> I look over at him, and I'm like, do I stop? And then, I didn't say that. But I was like, oh, no, head, no. I, I look over, and, and, he, and he he looks over, at me, and he just he just like gives me a thumbs up goes back on stage or whatever. And then like the next week or so, or I don't know, sometime shortly after we shot this music video for the song days of wild. It was a live performance and they were doing, they, they shot the the main shots at a show, but then they did pickup shots the next day. So he called me and the, the drum tech Magoo up on stage and, um, he just wanted us to stand over there, like between two of the musicians, and just bob our heads. I mean all of a sudden you got like a full-on film crew, like shooting on film or whatever. <laughs> and Prince standing there watching, me and I got to bob my head on. Like that was wild too. But um, he, he we, didn't bring you, he didn't bring you a plate of pancakes, did
0: he? No, we weren't like that. But uh, <laughs> no, but you know what? Everything you're like. I know from being on the road with. Like having people being on the road with you when they're into it and they're losing themselves into the performance and they're part of what's going on. You be that becomes part of your like you probably at that moment touched him in a way was like he's in here with me. Yeah, This is working. This dude doesn't have to be bobbing his head. He doesn't get he doesn't have to give a shit. I can just hire him like anybody else and fire him the next week. You're in there having a good time. You're you're fine. You know you're paying attention. You're in the jam with the dude. The reason why you know where the guitar solos are, it's because you're listening and paying attention. Right. There's nothing worse than an engineer who's not paying attention to what's going on or doesn't know like this is where Prince is going to go into his rap about this whatever blah 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 blah. And I should change X Y and Z. And the light, light, you know, like the lighting guy. Good lighting people will start to follow the performance, even though you rehearse something. They start right. to key into these things depending on the size of the space, right? And you're that yeah. kind of guy. You're a thoughtful producer, th- you know, you're interested in what you're doing. You're not doing something because it's boring, right? So that doesn't surprise me at all, to be honest with you. Yeah. No, I always like that- the vision of you and Prince hanging out and he a lollipop in his mouth. I know that we're getting close to the end of the time, but I feel like that,
1: what you just described, that could be said for everything I've done. I mean, not everything, but most of the big jobs I've had in my life, I'm into it. You know, the puffy stuff yeah the music wasn't exactly the kind of hip-hop i was listening to at the time but there was there still was black rob you know what i mean there it was there was still the ghost of biggie was still around we were still sampling biggie and actually i worked on the posthumous uh born again album i did some cuts on that um yeah so i mean I, i and and now my job now which is in advertising and i'm editing video and also doing music stuff The same thing, man. I'm not doing Charmin commercials, you know? We're working on, like, brands that I fuck with. um, And everything I'm working on right now... Well, the stuff I worked on the last two weeks is, like, so Black Lives Matter, I can't even believe that we're talking to brands about using this content. Like, it's it's not... It's not middle-of-the-road content. It's very cutting-edge, pushing the envelope. The music is always, you know cutting edge and has to be dope um yeah so i mean i feel like i'm super lucky to be able to do all to to, you know work with people like puff and prince but also like you know i worked on a like a bud i worked on the made in america music festival i helped i was part of the team that helped launch that whole thing you know with jay-z and budweiser so
0: I mean, I think that, that you're, you know, that's the path that you have is very similar to my path in, in the sense of like, you find a way in with a little hole in there, you wiggle your finger around, it gets a little bit bigger, it gets a little bit bigger, the next thing you know, you're taking on the thing because they don't have, you know, and, and you're moving on and you're, and you're helping develop projects and you become pinnacle to those, those projects because you bring in expertise and an energy. That becomes infectious because people want to be around good energy, especially in a creative business, especially with a lot of people who aren't cre- really creative. Right. You know, I had people throughout my whole entire career who still call me because I did something for them like 15 years ago, and I'm, I'm the guy who made like that thing happen. You yeah. know, I was just thinking about you the other day. I had this project. I don't know anyone else to call. Yeah, like this music supervisor called me a year and a half ago to work on. They had high, He was working on a TV show. Um, called Break Karate, and they had hired a, some some really hip producers to do the soundtrack, and it was basically like an '80s and '90s hip hop soundtrack. The idea was like different genres of music battling hip hop, original hip hop, and it was like an like a VH1 MTV type show where the guys would like a like yacht rock would battle hip hop, and then you know like disco would battle hip-hop and there would be these dance break-offs whatever anyway they had hired somebody to do the music and it just didn't they paid the big dollar for the hip act that didn't just work it was like not working out he called me out of the blue and he's like i know you're the only person like i literally know that you can do this no matter what do you want to do this you know we negotiated the whole thing but it was super fun to do the project and i basically i used the the roland um cloud library and you know only, and I just limited all of my instruments to the to the Roland Cloud. I was like, I'm only going to use 808, 909, you know, Juno 100, like all the stuff from back in the day. I was like, if I just use only this stuff, it's going to sound like the you know all the stuff that we were supposed to do. And I would go, I went through each thing, like you know, the stuff that sounded like Stetsasonic and. Um, You know, uh, Beastie Boys and Wu Tang, and you know I would do like five songs that sounded like this, and five songs that sound like this. All right, we have two minutes left. I knew this was gonna fly by. Every time I want to talk, like we could do this for hours. All right, ready? Faith or science? Both. Rave or festival? Festival. Ocean, lake, or desert? Is, this a, is that a three? Uh, Ocean, lake, or desert? Three different things. Um, I'm going to go with lake. What's your superpower? Quality control. How would you incorrectly describe your job?
1: Um, he's just a video editor.
0: <laughs> what animals should survive if only one can survive? Capybara. Cat or dog? Cat. If not music, then what? Well, you're actually doing video, so. Yeah, but. Yeah, okay.
1: Video, sure. Favorite meal? Favorite meal? Woo. Um, wow, do I have a favorite meal? Right now, I'm, I'm just, it's so, it's street food, but I love the Chinese baos.
0: Uh Hunter or gatherer?
1: gatherer i guess what's the last gift you gave someone i just bought somebody a crazy chelsea market gift basket like four hundred dollar crazy food basket
0: okay last question because like what genre are the talking heads art fat food, thank you very much thank you, you gotta stay connected